With two, he's got to get it up. Butler for the win. Oh, he did it. Oh, the Butler oh, did it. Unbelievable. San Diego State is headed to the national championship. Welcome to the Sportscasters Podcast. My name is Steve Bennett. Hey now. It is season 13, episode 6, April 3rd, 2023. My name is Steve Bennett. Like I said, today on the program, we have a pair. I love interviewing pairs. And the pair today are some nice British lads named Phil McNulty and Jim White, the authors of an awesome book called Red on Red, Liverpool, Manchester United, and the fiercest rivalry in the world of football. And also on the show today is a guy named Justin Bourne, college hockey player turned NHL media star up in Canada. He wrote a book that's been featured in our book club, as Phil and Jim did, and we're going to talk to him as well today. So we're going to clear some books off the shelf as we get ready to move into, I guess, the summer season or the spring season, maybe more appropriately. We'll talk to Phil and Jim in a minute and then Justin later. It is the eve before my family vacation. Uh, Paula, Tammy, and I are going to Columbus. And we'll do one last thing on family vacations later. But with that in mind, I don't have much time. So quickly, let's go through a few things. First things first. I said last week the Sabres were dead. The Sabres might not be dead. Uh, They have seven games left. They have two games in hand, and if they were to turn the games in hand to wins, they would be one point out with five games left. So certainly in it, uh, Devin Levi made his debut, was spectacular. The Sabres beat the Rangers 3-2, and Devin is going to be in the net tomorrow uh, as the Sabres face the Panthers in a four-point game. Not quite a loser lease town match, but it probably might as well be, especially for the Sabres. Uh, And they're going to put Levi in the net, which I love. He deserves to be there. Uh, UPL, Anderson. Anderson's probably played his last game, if we're being honest. Um, Comrie's awful. So it leaves you with UPL and the kid. Let's go with the kid. I like that. We'll see. I think the Sabres are experts at building up a little bit of hope and dashing them with their inexperience and immaturity and essentially their unfinished product. Uh, But look, they got what I wanted out of this season, and that's to be relevant in April, and and they did it. They're going to be relevant right to the end, and that's a success for this season, no matter what happens, playoffs or no playoffs. Uh, We hear the call at the top. San Diego State wins the first half of the Final Four on Saturday on a buzzer beater. Uh, Butler with the big shot after they elected not to call a timeout and just run down the court. He took the shot. It went in. They go to the Final final against UConn tonight. Uh, I had UConn in my brackets. I won two bracket pools. Basically because everybody lost, right? But I had the one team that... I was the one guy in both pools. They weren't huge, so... One was 14 people. I think the other one's 15. Uh, the difference was one was $50 entry, one was five. Uh, 
Uh, and I was the only one with UConn as the champ. And ultimately, in both of them, I only needed the one win. So thank you to UConn, who always seemed to be the winner uh, when I win brackets. If this, If they have their fifth championship tonight in the last 25 years, I ask, why aren't they considered Blue Bloods? It's one hell of a program. Uh, either way, and it's it's transcended coaches too. It's been a you know not just one coach. Uh, the WWF sold Vince McMahon bought the WWF in 1982 for one million dollars, uh, and he sold it for nine billion to the company that owns the UFC. Now they bought 51 percent of the shares, and now they're going to merge that company with the WWF corporately to make a super company. Who knows where that will go? Who knows knows what will happen? Nick Khan's been around kind of talking about the sale, talking about where the company wants to go in the future. And I think if you listen to him, he said some important things. One of is that I think the days of WrestleMania not being an upcharge are potentially over. Uh, But it will be interesting to see what happens now that Endeavor, the company that owns UFC, uh, owns the WWF as well. What happens with Vince McMahon? I don't know. It will be interesting to find out with them. College basketball ends tonight, which means Masters is this week. Also this weekend, the Frozen Four. Uh, I will be rooting for BU and another team I love called Anyone But Quinnipiac. Uh, So hopefully they don't get a title this weekend. Uh, It's Masters week. My favorite golfer, every Masters, is another, uh, another interesting player called Anyone But Tiger Woods. Um, so I'll be rooting for them this weekend as well. Uh, hopefully an American guy wins. Um, last thing. Here. Oh, baseball's back. Real baseball. Uh, opening day was on the 30th. Max Fried got hurt three innings into the season. He's on the IL. Um, the Braves have pitchers in it, injured all over the place. Kyle, Kyle Wright's injured as well. Started the season on the injured list. Uh, They had a rookie pitch yesterday. He got beat up, got sent down today. Uh, Another rookie starting tonight, although they're mashing the ball so far in St. Louis. But the Braves are a little injured, but baseball's back. And it's got a lot of momentum here. I heard Rob Manfred on the Mad Dogs Sirius XM show. Or excuse me, it was on his uh, Major League, the Baseball Network show, High Heat. And they talked a lot about the momentum baseball has right now coming out of the World Baseball Classic which Manford described as the most successful international best-on-best tournament ever. He's probably right about that. The rule changes have been a hit. We've had games of two hours and ten minutes. Uh, There's stolen bases. Their single is back. Uh, I think it's going to be a great baseball season. I'm looking forward to it. The one thing I hope doesn't happen is there's some talk that during playoffs, they'll take away the pitch clock. I hope to God that doesn't happen. Uh, I think the pitch clock needs to be here to stay. So, First things first, just wanted to mention a couple things, uh, but I don't have a lot of time, so we did it quickly. I was talking too fast. You know, I stink. You, know, you would think, what, 12 years into this, I, I would be would learn how to talk, not be such a mush mouth, rushing, not enunciating. I just absolutely stink. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back with Phil McNulty and Jim White, two guys I liked, really nice blokes. Uh, we talk about their book, Red on Red, Liverpool, Manchester United, and the fiercest rivalry in the world. Let's take a break. McNulty and White on the other side.
Thank you for checking out the Sportscasters podcast. Don't forget to check out my other show, the 24-inch podcast. Hollywood Dave Rollins, Paula Bennett, and myself look back at the career of Hulk Hogan, the immortal one. We do it every other week. We cover matches from the 80s, the 90s, his entire career. We read the news from the era. It's a great nostalgic look back at the greatest wrestling career in the history of the business. Be sure to check it out right on this feed, brother. Phil McNally and Jim White, how are we doing, guys? Phil, how are you today? I'm very, very good, thank you. I'm sitting in, sitting in rainy Oxford. Um, rainy Oxford. Wishing I was maybe somewhere else, yeah. Okay. And Jim, where are you today? I'm just about uh, a couple of miles down the road from Phil, actually. We both, uh, we've both emigrated from the northwest of England. Uh, Phil's from Liverpool, I'm from Manchester, and now we're both in Oxford. Okay. Why is why Oxford? Is that just a an appealing appealing living area, or just a coincidence? Did you guys go for jobs? Why why is that the uh, hot spot for Phil and Jim? I I moved down here in um, two thousand when I came to work at the BBC. So okay. it was a combination of a personal decision and also um, I was in within shooting reach, if you like, of the BBC, and it suits my purposes perfectly now because. It's quite central to get to all the grounds in London, in the Midlands. Still a bit of a journey up to Merseyside and Manchester, but it's, it's a good place to live, not just because it's a beautiful city, but also it, it works well for my job with lots of travelling around. Gotcha. Yeah, it's perf- we're perfectly positioned, really, right in the centre of, uh, of England. And uh, unless it's a game uh, against, uh, involving Newcastle, that's a bit far. <laughs> Otherwise, we can virtually get to every... Uh, I think we're about three hours away at, at, at furthest from from any of the clubs in the uh, in the Premier League, so it's a good it's a good spot to be geographically. All right, that makes sense. Let me ask you this, Phil. Let's start with you. Why did it? Had you and I guess I don't know, and maybe I should have. And I did my best to research you guys a little bit, but has this was this book the first time you guys had worked together on a project to this size? Like I had the guys on that wrote uh, Messi versus Ronaldo, but they had written the book about the Premier League as well. Is this the first time you guys wrote together? And if it was, how did that partnership come about and how did you know to, to work on it together? Well, what, what happened was the, the idea for the book actually came from my wife, who's a Liverpool supporter. And she said that um, lots of books have been written about Liverpool and Manchester United separately, uh, but maybe not one together, just on the rivalry, but also about all the things that exist around the rivalry, like the geography, the nature, the, uh, the, the, the politics, the culture, uh, the nature of the two cities, something a bit more than the football. Um, the football is at the heart of it, of course, with the 10 games we picked and the sort of opening and closing chapters. But really, it, it's, it's examining the rivalry in its wider context. And obviously, I know, Jim, uh, through working, we, we saw each other at a lot of games, were effectively neighbours. And I'm from Liverpool, um, and Jim's from Manchester, and, I've, and my idea was to have two sets of eyes looking at it, really. I could do the one uh, from Liverpool, homing in there, and Jim, you know, with his, obviously, his broadcasting and his writing and everything, has made him, a, you know, a big figure in this country in sports journalism, and he's a big Manchester United fan, so I thought, perfect idea, and, and I, I approached Jim with the idea, 
And um, we really loved doing it. People were very keen to speak to us. We interviewed 50 people. Uh, and so that's how the idea came about. I, you know, I wanted Jim as that sort of the other half of the partnership to, to, to almost mirror the rivalry effectively, if you like. Obviously, I was very reluctant because, you know, we in Manchester, uh, we from Manchester are very, very suspicious of anyone from Liverpool, <laughs> even, even, even <laughs> Phil. So, uh, obviously, I was very reluctant. No, it worked, it worked really well. And I think it's important, really, when you're dealing with this to have the two perspectives so that the, 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 the two come together. And Phil mentioned there, you know, the huge rivalry between the two cities, the fact that they both fancy themselves as these great, outstanding cultural cities in the north of England, much bigger and more important than Manchester. Actually, there's an awful lot in common between the two cities, as you often find. I mean, Phil's described it as like a sibling rivalry. It's two brothers at war, really. And, and I think that it was important to have one from each place really to get that proper perspective and to realize almost as much is in common as they have uh, in antipathy and i mean i'm an outsider but i would say liverpool has the beatles isn't that kind of game set match in the rivalry in general oh dude don't i'm not having that <laughs> okay but you you have just you have just pinched one of my favorite lines from every interview we ever do <laughs> because people talk about the rivalry and the music and whenever anyone mentions music uh, and I said it to some of your American colleagues yesterday on television. I said, I just mentioned the Beatles. And, and there's my it. card. Yeah. Try, and beat, try and beat that. And, of course, Manchester, who've had some great bands, great bands like the Smiths, New Order, etc. But none of them can beat the Beatles. And I was going to say Oasis, but they're City fans, right? They are indeed, yes. Uh, they, they were... Uh, uh, well, they claim to be. I mean, I, no, no. I think I think they were. I think they. Uh, I think they. I think they have a, an affiliation for the for the blue side uh, yeah. of Manchester. The interesting thing about actually, the interesting thing about uh, Oasis, about the Beatles, about uh, most of the bands in uh, certainly the Smiths. You know, if you look at the names of the guys involved, so you got Gallagher, Lennon. You know, uh, um, a lot of Irish connections there yeah. and and both of these cities have got huge irish immigrant core a lot of irish people came to liverpool and manchester in the industrial revolution and subsequently uh, to work there and 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 i think a lot of that creativity uh, that spark that that imagination uh, the, the kind of creativity comes from that irish immigration into both cities interesting Phil, you mentioned your wife is a Liverpool supporter. Are you as well? Because Jim right away claimed um, United, but I didn't hear you claim Liverpool. I, I am, I am, I am not a Liverpool supporter. I okay. am from Liverpool, and the um, the the background really from me in Liverpool is that I've worked on the local paper, the morning paper in Liverpool, in from February 1987. Ironically, the first game I ever covered uh, was in the city where I'm living now. It was a game between Oxford and Everton. Uh, and Everton went on to win the, the league that year, so you can tell how long ago that was. Um, <laughs> but I, co I, I covered Liverpool, uh, well, virtually from 1987 right the way through um, to 2000 when I moved to the BBC. And obviously the job I'm in, I'm in now means I see an awful lot of Liverpool. But really, sure. when I first started my career in sports journalism, I was covering Liverpool and Everton. And so lived 
lived and experienced quite a lot of the games we talk about as a journalist and all the threads that were coming out of those games that we could explore. So um, that's, my, that's my background, really. I, I, am, from, I am from Liverpool. Uh, I am not a Liverpool fan. I always try to remain impartial and don't say how I, I support. Oh, you don't, um, no, nobody knows my who you support? Is it a secret? Well, Jim does, but Jim, Jim does. does, but he won't no. tell you. <laughs> I, I, well, I don't work for the BBC. I don't work for the BBC. Phil's, Phil's obliged to do that. Right. It's funny, you know, in, in Glasgow... You don't want to line up... You uh, don't where, wanna, I'm sorry, you don't want to end up like, what's his name? All over the news, right? And everyone had to abstain from coverage for a weekend and everything, so you got to... Got to be careful. Got to be impartial. That's impartial. right. Yeah. That's right, Gary Lineker. Yeah. Gary That's Lineker. exactly yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Uh, funny, funny enough, in Glasgow, uh, where obviously Rangers and Celtic is the big story, all the uh, reporters there have to remain impartial because otherwise the outlet that they have loses half its audience. You know, if you sure. become renowned as yeah. a, a Celtic fan, you'll lose the Rangers and vice versa. And so all of the reporters up there claim that they support Partick Thistle, uh, which is another <laughs> club in uh, Glasgow uh, that has never won anything. And uh, I think the only people who support Gla- uh, Partick Thistle are actually reporters in Glasgow. That's great. That's <laughs> funny. That's great. Uh, let me ask you guys this. So Manchester United, like it's a club that even when you don't follow the sport, you know, right? Like it transcends the sport. I think like Barcelona does, Real Madrid does, maybe Juventus. There's a few clubs that even before I was as involved in the sport as I was, even, you know, I knew those clubs and I always had heard growing up, it was always said like, if you want to know who the Yankees or who the Cowboys are in England, it's Manchester United. Who's Liverpool then? Liverpool. It's Liverpool are. Uh, I was going to say Liverpool are one of the uh, the most successful clubs in world football, and I, I think they are part of that um, that family of clubs, if you like, that you've just mentioned. Liverpool, um, and to use one of their own phrases, as a banner on the cop, uh, they describe themselves as as European royalty, and I think in football terms they are. The funny thing is, though, we um, we spoke to Lou Macari, who. Uh, went on to be very successful as Man- at Manchester United. And he was literally sitting at Anfield waiting to sign for Liverpool from Celtic when the Manchester United assistant manager, Pat Crowen, came and sat next to him, asked him what he was doing there. And he said, I'm here to sign for Liverpool. At which point he said, oh, no, you're not. I've, I've missed a couple of words out of what he said there. Um, he immediately rang the Manchester United manager and Lou Macari went, went to Manchester United. Now, if you measure a career in terms of trophies, he would have been much better off going to Liverpool because Liverpool won countless titles and European Cups when, or Champions League, no, now, when Macari was actually at Manchester United. But when he said, when, in that 1973 time, when Manchester United wanted to sign him, he felt he would have to sign for Manchester United and Jim will maybe expand on this because they were the more glamorous club. They had George Best, Bobby Charlton, Dennis Law. And he said whenever, even in his early days at Manchester United, whenever he went abroad with Manchester United, people would always talk about Manchester United. They would not talk about Liverpool. So he remained perfectly happy with his decision. Uh, but, but Jim, again, will, will explain, if you like, why Manchester United are seen as more glamorous, even though Liverpool have been sweeping up uh, more Champions Leagues than them uh, and had, had an amazing era of dominance. Yeah, yeah. I think you, I think you strike something really important there when you suggested that United had a bigger worldwide renown because that really rankled 
uh, with Liverpool fans, uh, particularly when they were dominating, when they were winning the leagues, when they were winning the European Cup. They felt that they didn't get the rewards that they should have done in terms of renown. And United, who weren't winning anything, were, were very glamorous and, 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 and therefore got known around the world. And in part, that was due to the Munich Air disaster in 1958, which was this great phoenix from the play, flames, um, the, the way that they kind of regroup, regrew, uh, and, and you know, became great again, having been destroyed in 1958. That became mythologized, very glamorous and very glorious. And the Liverpool fans in the 1970s turned that back on United, and that really inflamed the rivalry between the two sides. They used to make mockery of the Munich air crash, and that inflamed the United fans who got back at them. Liverpool then had the Hillsborough disaster and United fans had to go at them and there, and it became very poisonous around that mythology that you were talking about. But the fact is, these two clubs are far and away the most storied clubs in English football. They're the ones who have won the most trophies between them. They're very close in terms of how many trophies they've won. So for you to say that when you were growing up, United was more renowned, I'll accept that as a United fan, but it'll rankle the Liverpool fans. Right, and, and I think part of the analogy too was that the Yankees are loved by people who love the Yankees and sort of hated by people who don't, you know? Um, and I think that maybe played into it as well, and that the uh, that the that the the that maybe the arrogance of a Yankee fan too, the, the way the Yankee fans carry them, you know, like oh we had we've had Ruth and Mantle and Garrig and Jeter and all these guys, and you know, twenty six championships. I guess maybe when it comes to trophies, it differs a little bit, but it sort of reminds me of Liverpool, you know, comfortably being the Red Sox, you know, the other yes. uh, the other. Yes, I think that would be. In the 90s and 2000s, when Manchester United uh, were sweeping all before them, certainly in terms of winning the league title, a group of people were named called ABUs, and they were called anyone but United. And basically, right. they just couldn't care who won, <laughs> so long as it wasn't Manchester United. Um, and, I, and I have to say, I think quite a lot of people have the same, uh, the same attitude towards, towards Liverpool. I mean, last season... Um, when they they were going for the four trophies and they'd had the earlier success on the clock, uh, everybody just regarded them. Um, they called them unbearable. That was the phrase they used, unbearable, all the time. And in the end, there was a banner on the cop turning the the annoyance back on the people who didn't like them. And the banner just said the unbearables. Um, but so both sets of clubs have had it in their times of success. The sort of thing is, if they win, you'll never hear the end of it. And you know, vice versa. And I, I remember in the late 2010s, um, Liverpool and Manchester United were going for the Champions League final, 2008, I think it would be. And Liverpool were in one semi-final and Manchester United were in another. And I know Liverpool fans, some members of my own family uh, and also other friends of mine who said they wouldn't mind Liverpool getting knocked out in the semi-final because it meant they wouldn't lose the final to Manchester United or there wasn't that possibility that they would lose the finals of Manchester United. And the rivalry is so bitter that I think if one or the other had won that final, if they got together, and Liverpool were knocked out in the semi-final, so, so it didn't happen. They felt that if one beat the other in a Champions League final, 
that would be, if you like, the Beatles of the arguments. If you know, if you argue backwards and forwards all you liked, but a Manchester United fan or a Liverpool fan could tell, yes, but we beat you in the Champions League final. And that's why I know people right. who were happy when Liverpool got out. Oh, not so much happy, but not quite as unhappy as they might have been, because at least they didn't have to face the prospect of losing to Manchester United in a Champions League final. And I think lots of Manchester United fans actually felt the same. Yeah, and I can relate to that because, you know, I, I know the last couple of days I've been fending off uh, England supporters by saying, yeah, well, we beat you in the Euro final. You know what I mean? So <laughs> have your have your parade for game one of the 2024 uh, qualifying if you like. But uh, <laughs> anyway, a couple of weeks ago, I was going through this book and it was a Sunday afternoon and I, I looked at my phone to check scores and realized that Liverpool and Manchester United were playing that day. And I turned it on and uh, started watching, I assume, one of the most historic days in the history of the rivalry. I mean, seven to nothing, an absolute pounding in, in a moment when it seems like uh, Eric Ten Hag and United have sort of started to ascend a little bit, that that program and those ideas are working in a moment where Liverpool is maybe on the backside of their run that they've had the last couple of years. And Liverpool said, oh, no. Uh, not today, and seven nothing, and just an unbelievable beatdown. I mean, to see any game in football be seven nothing, let alone rivals like that, let alone playing out that way. And, and you guys focused on, I think it's ten games in the book. If you were writing it t- tomorrow, would, would that be another? Would would that would that would that game be in the book, or would it would it be something you'd have to consider? And and how do you guys think, what do you guys think of that newest kind of uh, chapter written in the rivalry? I, I've forgotten all about it. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Sorry, no. I put, put it completely out of my memory. No, no. Uh, actually, I, I, I think I think you put your finger on it there. Uh, you know, Liverpool have had a, a, a topsy-turvy season, you know, having been in contention for four trophies last season. Um They've, they've not done fantastically well. Uh, in fact, I was at um, a match they were playing against Wolves. I was reporting on it. And I put out a tweet. They were 3-0 down. And I put out a tweet saying, um, oh, how survey, sarcastic tweet saying, uh, Liverpool being destroyed here. How sad it is to watch a great footballing institution crumble before your very eyes. And then two weeks later, they absolutely hammered United. So I got a bit of a comeuppance there. Yeah. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but I think it's, a, I think it's, I think it's an absolute example of the, of, of the rivalry between the two clubs. You know, we've, we've, we've given our supporters a really pretty poor season. We're not doing well, but we're going to do it against these guys. And, and to be honest, they played, against United in a way they just haven't done it in this season. You know, they brought it all back together. This was almost like they were when they were going for the four trophies. It was it was so left field, so unexpected. I know Phil was there, so he probably gets a better perspective uh, than me, but it, it just seemed so odd, didn't it? Well the, well, the funny thing was, for the first 41 minutes, that game was very, very even. Yeah, it was. Uh, and yeah. If, any, if, if anything, if anything, Manchester United uh, had the better chances. So they missed a couple of chances. I think uh, Fernandez missed one, and, and Marcus Rashford, who was scoring with everything, missed one as well. Uh, so it was slightly against the run of play when Liverpool went ahead four minutes before half time. So at, at, when we were all gathered in the press room at half time, the general view was Liverpool will need another goal at least here, not thinking they'd score six. 
Um, and it was just like, one of the oddest games of football I've ever seen. But interesting, going on about what Jim said about Liverpool, um, I was speaking to a, a very well-known former Liverpool player at a game earlier this season. I won't say who it was, because uh, I don't want to embarrass him. And he said to me, he said, Liverpool will be the perfect example of a great team in decline this season. He said, they will be poor, but every now and then they will pull out one spectacular performance right. and then they will go back to being in decline again. And he couldn't have pitched it more perfectly because, of course, they score seven goals against Manchester United. The next week, they lose a Bournemouth 1-0. You could have almost put your house on that happening by this guy's uh, judgment. And then, of course, in the middle of the week, admittedly, they were 5-2 down, so they were completely up against it against Real Madrid. But that was such a timid exit. I've, I've never seen a Liverpool team under Jurgen Klopp play as if they knew they weren't going to win. Um, you know, it was a three-goal deficit, understandably, but they just they didn't look like they, they, they were going to cause Real Madrid a moment of bother. Right. So I think that judgment is, is spot on about Liverpool. A great team in decline, but still with enough in them to every now and then produce something out of the ordinary. And unfortunately for Jim, unfortunately for Liverpool, the one they produced it in before going back into decline again was against Manchester United in a, in a historic scoreline. Yeah, and it, it, you, you, that Champions League game, you expected at least Liverpool to get a goal early and to put a little, make them sweat mm. or something, yeah. you know, and it just yeah. didn't happen at all. Um, I'm trying to think. One of the Italian teams must have been playing at the same time, so I don't think I've seen a lot of it, but I just kept looking and waiting for it to be, you know, one nothing Liverpool because I just thought, they're they're a prideful club. They're going to at least make these guys earn this, you know. But I don't know. Never happened. Interesting year. And I guess at, at, to go to your point, that's what happens when you're you're a team on decline, as they may be. Do you yeah. think they got enough out of this core? Did they win enough? Were there enough trophies in the Salah era, or however you want to phrase it? Did they did they maximize the opportunity? If in fact they are in decline, and I feel like even a decline, a team in decline like Liverpool in this climate. I don't think they'll be in decline for long, right? I mean, I think they'll no. reload and, and they'll be back with a new Salah or what, however you want to phrase it. But did they did they maximize it enough, do you think? I, I mean, I think they've had a great time under Jurgen Klopp. But I suppose if you're being brutally honest about it, they will look and think maybe we should have won more um, than, you know, one Premier League title, uh, one Champions League. But they've been up against Manchester City who were relentless in the Premier League. And they've pushed them all the way, in a way, no other team has done. Um, and, of course, they were going for uh, four trophies last season, um, won the FA Cup and the League Cup, which was a great return. But in the end, there was almost even a sense of disappointment about that because they missed out to City on the last day of the season. I was at Manchester City when they scored those three goals in five minutes against Aston Villa. Absolutely remarkable. And then, of course, they lost the Champions League final to, to, um, to Real Madrid. And um, I mean, to go back to the Beatles analogy, a very good journalist uh, in this country wrote in his column, Liverpool were chasing the Fab Four, but in the end, only George and Ringo turned up um, mm. for the reunion, nice um, yeah. um, which, I think is, which I think is a terrible thing to say about George Harrison and Ringo Starr. Um, <laughs> but it was a point well, it was a point well made that Liverpool uh, were chasing those four trophies. At one point, they seemed to be almost just marching into history uh, with this greatest season that no one could possibly ever top. Uh, and even they won two trophies and you know, they had a parade, a homecoming parade 
I think there was still a little bit of disappointment in the fact that they didn't win the Champions League and they were beaten so agonisingly in the Premier League on the last day of the season. And I think that may have carried over into this season. They played every game they could have possibly played last season. So I think mental and physical fatigue may also be playing a part in what Liverpool are doing or not doing now. But one thing, one one area where they really have... Uh, exploited their moment maybe not in the trophy room but certainly on the bottom line of their accounts mm. uh, things have done gone very well the Fenway Sports Group have really motored, accelerated uh, you know, uh, put warp factor into their finances uh, and, and so they've exploited their moment brilliantly, they've completely redeveloped Anfield, you know, they've built a huge new main stand. They're in the process of building up the Anfield Road stand. They're going to have a 60,000-seater stadium, exploiting their moment, the fact that they're now a national football club with people coming from all over the country and indeed all over the world to watch them. Phil and I were in Norway recently. There are thousands of Norwegians who regularly come to Anfield, have got season ticket, uh, season ticket holders. They also go to Old Trafford. But, but also, off the field, Liverpool's revenues last season overtook Manchester United's. That is extraordinary. You know, 10 years ago, Manchester United's commercial revenues were double Liverpool's last season Liverpool overtook them so I don't think the uh, the, the Fenway Sports Group uh, would suggest that they haven't exploited their moment that's for sure you know it's funny too when I called them the Red Sox I didn't even think in my head like oh yeah they're on my Fenway Sports Group too as well yes <laughs> same, same owners same owners so it's, it's an even better analogy from that yeah. point of view now I know there's been this fake deadline and there's a chance right now that United will be sold um, and I even heard about this guy who wants to like get everyone else to buy the team and then he'll be the owner. He'll put like half it in and then there'll be an app you can go to like, should United, uh, sign, you know, Nicolo Barella press a on the app, you know, I don't know. Uh, but, um, is there any annoyance in England? Do people feel annoyed that these two clubs are owned? I mean, Fenway sports group isn't a human being, I guess it's a conglomerate of them but um the the uh, glazers are certainly with such tight you know the, the owners of the bucks or whatever do people get annoyed by that is and i know like you know uh other teams are owned by a lot of foreign interests are owning clubs in europe nowadays it's not unusual but do, do teams get annoyed or is it like if you got a, an owner who's with money and you spend you don't care if they're from timbuktu it's an interesting one this one but uh, my personal feeling and and you know there's almost as many feelings as there are football fans in, in, in the country. Um, you know, there are, there's a potential that the Qataris will take over Manchester United. And there are plenty of Manchester United fans who'd love the fact that the very, very rich guys are coming with deep pockets and will spend and buy players, blah, 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 blah. My feeling is that Liverpool and Manchester United should be beacons of a different kind of ownership because I feel that both of them have the commercial opportunity not to need a guy with deep pockets behind them. They don't need a sugar daddy. They could do it from their own resources. And I think a lot of, certainly my view, I, 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 I think Phil probably shares this, we look to Germany where in Germany there's this rule of 50 plus one, which means that uh, 
uh, outside ownership can only take as much as 49% of a club. Right. 50 plus 1% has to be from the fans. And yes, you could say that German football doesn't dominate Europe as a result of that. Right, and one team wins But I'm afraid year. that... Well, one team wins every year. But I'm afraid the Premier League has become such an international monolith that investors from around the world want to get involved not just from America, though there's, what, I think it's eight or, am I right, eight, eight, maybe even ten clubs in the Premier League are owned by American groups now, but also from the Middle East as well, and we had Russians, uh, both right, of Chelsea, them right? subsequently gone. Yeah. We had Russian at Chelsea and Bournemouth, they both sold up recently, but the Russians were there temporarily, and, and, and you know, it is a shame in that res- respect that that it's kind of dislocated from its fan base in a way that the German football hasn't. Interesting. Let me ask you guys this. The book is called Red on Red, Liverpool, Manchester United, and the fiercest rivalry in the world. I'm lucky enough to have the authors, Phil McNulty, no relation to um, to McNulty from The Wire, as far as I know, and Jim White as well. <laughs> uh, I've been, The whole time I've been thinking in my head, you are a gaping asshole, McNulty, uh, which is something that... Um, uh, the the police commissioner says to McNulty on the wire. Sorry, uh, just, just, so we get Jim 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 says that to me all the time. Don't worry. <laughs> but these are uh, two great lads who wrote a great book. And um, before I let you go, a couple more I want to get to. Uh, first, if there was a part two, and you you guys write it in ten years from now, uh, and you can both take a crack at this, what do you what do you think the story you'll be writing is? What do you think the next ten years has in store for the rivalry and for the clubs? I, I think the rivalry will last forever and be as passionate as it always is. But you wonder if ten, in 10 years' time, um, who will be owning those clubs? How powerful have Newcastle United become in, the, in those 10 years? And Manchester City aren't going away. So I think it's going to be interesting to see whether the, either of those clubs will ever grab that position of power uh, that they've, they've had before. Because also, of course... I should mention Todd Bowley has arrived at Chelsea, another American, and is just throwing money around. No one can quite sure believe is. it. Yeah. Um, so maybe maybe in a decade, um, I still wonder whether even then, and we all know how quickly football can change, and it depends on who's owning the clubs, of course, as Jim said, how much money they've got. Um, I think in 10 years' time, they will still be struggling to grab that particular uh, platform of supremacy that they had before. And of course, suddenly from nowhere... We've seen Arsenal looking like a team ready to restore former glory. So I think there'll be a lot of competition for Liverpool and Manchester United to try and regain their preeminence in the game. And in 10 years' time, I, I'm not sure there'll be the sort of clean sweep of trophies that we were talking about when in this book when Liverpool were dominant in the 70s and the 80s and then both still won trophies. But in the, from the mid-90s onwards, uh, it was Manchester United dominating. The funny thing is, as we explored the book, we came to realise that there's never been a Premier League title race that has gone down to the last day involving Liverpool and Manchester United. It just has, it's amazing considering the history of the two clubs. Liverpool um, might combust. and Manchester United. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Jim, uses the phrase, Jim uses the phrase when he says, maybe there just isn't enough oxygen in the sport. <laughs> That's what I was to, thinking. To conduct that. Yeah. Sky, Sky, Sports, Sky Sports would pay 
millions if they could guarantee that. But we've had Manchester United and Manchester City fighting it out on the last day. We've had Liverpool and Manchester City fighting it out on the last day. And yet we've never had Liverpool and Manchester United. And that would be a proper blockbuster, Hollywood-style blockbuster box office. And maybe we'll get that over the next 10 years, but I'm not quite sure that will happen. I think one thing that won't go away, um, and, and, and Phil's absolutely right, I think possibly the Premier League is going to become ever more competitive. I don't mean that, you know, uh, that the, the, there's going to be an outsider winning it, although Leicester City did. I mean, amongst the big moneyed six, I think it's going to be much closer and it's, it's, it's harder to anticipate there'll be one dominant. But one thing that won't go away is is the rivalry. And in a sense, you know, that rivalry, it's in the dressing rooms as much as it is on the terraces. And it's driven by the local lads at the heart of the team. And, uh, and, and you know, you mentioned the 7-0 and that was painful. But last season, I was standing uh, on the Stretford end um, watching uh, United lose 5-0 at, uh, at, at home to Liverpool. And uh, at the end of the match, as the Liverpool players were coming off the pitch, they were getting dogs abuse from those few who were remaining on the Stretford end at the end. And um, Trent Alexander-Arnold, who's serenaded by Liverpool fans as the scouser in the team, was conducting them like a choir. You could see he absolutely relished that moment. And you could see that that kind of Liverpudlian heart of the team has spread and instructed and educated the guys who come in from overseas into the meaning of that game. Likewise, at Manchester United, Marcus Rashford, Scott McTominay, these local lads, although McTominay plays for Scotland, he's, he's a Manchester boy, they, 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 they educate the guys around them. And I think that'll always be there. You know, I think that's always going to be part of it. You are standing up for your community and that won't go away. Awesome. Again, the book is called Red on Red, Liverpool, Manchester United, and the Fiercest Rivalry in the World. All right, let me give you four or five real quick ones. You can answer these questions quickly. First one, who's going yep. to win the Premier League, Arsenal or Manchester City? I thought for a long while Manchester City, but now I'm starting to think Arsenal. Right, okay. I still think City. They, they've got, they've got like that, that horrible goal machine called Haaland, so I think they'll win it. <laughs> okay. Who's going to win the Champions League? I think Real Madrid, they always do. I'm going to go for Manchester City this year. Okay, okay. I'm going for Napoli, but that's just me. Oh, Um, well, wow. Napoli are great. It'd be great if it wasn't Real Madrid. (laughs) I was in in Napoli last week for the England game, and uh, you always talk to your taxi driver, don't you? Yeah. And he just said to me, he said, our team is perfect. And he said, can you just imagine this city where we not only win Syria, we win the Champions League as well. And oh yeah, I can imagine that city if it's like that. <laughs> they just, you know, I think it's their style, though. They haven't played many players, you know, and I hope they don't burn out. Um, mm. But uh, they're going to have, they're going to be able to focus on Champions League because the Scudetta is over, right? I mean, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a huge luxury, I think. Certainly over City, you know. Um, I guess Real Madrid, it's over for them too, but the opposite direction, right? I mean, I think Barcelona is clearly winning that, but I think it's an advantage. And I think the draw, you couldn't ask for more if you're Napoli, right? Those other, the three big teams nope. got to beat each other up on the left hand side, and you just got to hang mm-hmm. out on the right hand side with two Italian teams that, 
you're 13 points better than or more on the year. Um, and, and a, a good Benfica side. I'm not trying to put them down at all or, or whatever, but I don't know. I think it was just a really great draw for them. And I think there is, there's got to be a now or never urgency to it, too. I don't know if that's helpful or hurtful. Yeah. I, I, the, the only fear I have for Napoli is if you look at the, um, the 2004 Porto team that won the Champions League, uh, Jose Mourinho was the manager. Uh, manager and the best players... That team was taken apart by European football the next season. Plucked, they were like a bunch of vultures hanging around. And I think there's an awful lot of players who are coveted by clubs with deep pockets, and they'll come and get them. That's the real worry, I right. think, for Napoli. And that's why it's maybe it now or never. Yeah, that's why it's maybe now yeah. or never. Yeah. And I think the more they win and the further they go and the more goals that Oshiman scores and things like that, the higher those prices go up and the more attractive it is maybe to um to sell off but um okay a couple more quick ones who's the best player in the premier league you know let's say under 21 and why is it willie noto Ooh, best player uh, right now. how old how old is harlan go on jim you can go first uh but Saka. i think he's an i think he's absolutely outstanding and 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 also he, 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 you know, he, he's a local lad to Arsenal. Uh, he's been through Arsenal, brought up through their ranks. If he leads them to the title, which I don't think he will, but if he did, what an achievement that is. He's also a real role model, a really great guy, uh, and, and I think a fantastic player. And, and actually, when you look at England, um, sorry, Italy, when you look at England in the, uh, in the Euros, they've got a front line of Saka, Kane, and Rashford. Blimey, come on. That is yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Saka yeah. for me is Saka for me is the man. Yeah, I would I would agree with Jim totally on that. I think he's just been he was he was great at the World Cup. One one of the real standout England performers. And he just carried that on since he got back to Arsenal. He's been getting better and better. Um and certainly we talked about this with Jim the other day. We get to vote for the Football Rights Association Footballer of the Year. And in any other year, you'd think Haaland would walk away with it. But there'll be plenty of people, I think, who will be considering putting for Kai Osaka. Yeah, but it's still Haaland. Um, look, at, I'm, a huge, <laughs> I'm a huge Saka fan. I mean, I'm all for that kid. He can miss penalties against my team any day of the week. So I'm all for him. I'm glad he's recovered from that. It's a traumatic moment, all jokes aside. Um, he's an awesome player. I was sort of making a joke about my guy, Willie. Um, and sort of bragging on him for a second. Uh, one more. Why doesn't Skamaka play for West Ham? when he? Pl- I know he's been injured. He's had some injuries with his knee. I get that. But they spent all this money to bring him over there. They let him play in, like, the Cups, and he scores. And then the league, he just doesn't play. And then I hear sound bites from the coach. It's like, well, he doesn't know English football enough, this and that. Well, how is he going to learn it? He gets like six minutes. I think there are, a, I think there are a, couple, a couple of things that work there. Okay. Um, when I when I first saw him uh, this season, I thought he looked really good. I don't think he's maintained his form, and I also think the manager David Moyes can be quite cautious about introducing new players into his team. It doesn't matter to him how much they've been play, they've been play, uh, paid. Um, you know, he signed some. You know, like by, well, Ben Rama was someone paid big money for. Again, very slow to integrate him into the team. And maybe it's the same with Skamaka, but I can't imagine Skamaka's happy having come from Italy. Uh, and um, as I said, I saw him playing for Italy in Milan against England last uh, September. 
and he was absolutely excellent. He really thought West Ham had got a great buy on hands, but it just hasn't worked out for him. And funnily enough, that this whole season hasn't worked out for West Ham, and they've had a terrible season. Yeah, they make it relegated, right? Competition. They make it relegated. Yeah, but, the, but there's a possibility, definitely. But um, I just think maybe he's lost confidence after the start of the season. And also, I think David Moyes is very particular about when and why he introduces new players into his team. He likes to be very consistent in his thinking. But maybe in the muzzle of the relegation, the bad results this season... Um, he, he's he's just trying to bed him in, but I, I just think he's maybe not performed that well. The team isn't performing that well, and his form has suffered. Yeah, I guess my I mean, argument it's a shame be, because you know, go ahead. Yeah, you go ahead. Uh, no, it's a shame because he's he's a guy who had great ambitions to come to the Premier League. He, he he'd worked hard at it. He'd worked on his English. He speaks the language. He he was very keen to get over to England. And also, he seemed to be the kind of player that West Ham needed. They needed a focal point. They needed a centre-forward. They needed someone to put the uh, the ball in the net. I wouldn't be surprised if he moved on elsewhere in England uh, in the summer. He because should. clearly, it's not working with him. Yeah, I was going to say... I you, see, so you see someone like see someone like Pakatar, who came uh, for more than £50 million pounds and... Look excellent in the World Cup, but again, he's not really done it for West Ham this season either. So maybe they're all just being submerged in this the poor form and the worries of the relegation uh, because they spent an awful lot of money last summer, which raised the expectations that they would finish even higher than they have been doing. Yeah, and the complete opposite has happened. They are they are in genuine relegation trouble. Yeah, like I said, if I'm Skamaka, I'm saying, look, you've given me a chance to play in some of these cup games, and I've produced. You can't expect me to produce when I'm getting six minutes here, you know, ten minutes here um, in the in the league. But I'm sure there's, you know, more to it than I could understand at this moment. All right, last thing, I'll get you out of here on this. I think this is the most important question of the day. Uh, between Phil and Jim, who was? Because I know I heard it's one of you. Who was the Trent Krim from the Independent character modeled after? Was it you, Phil, or was it Jim? <laughs> Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> I have not a clue. <laughs> I have not a clue. Do you guys? You guys watch Ted Lasso? Have you guys watched Ted Lasso or no? Uh, Ted Lasso. I, I, you know what? I, um, sorry, go on, Phil. No, I've not seen it. So I, 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 okay. I, I, have, I have never watched it. Okay, so that's why that joke bombed. I was wondering. I'm like, why aren't these? Guys, <laughs> why don't these guys like that joke? There's uh there's the the guy that harasses Ted in the in the in the media room. The kind of real hard-nosed English reporter is a guy who writes for the Independent. It's called named Trent Krim. So that's why I was yeah, asking that. So the joke bomb. Oh, you guys okay, okay. Who? Which I'm of us asked you know. the toughest questions? Yeah, that's yeah. a good question. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. Who asked the toughest questions? Ooh, well, you know, he's like that bull. He's the bulldog United. reporter. You know what I mean? He's like the guy. Stands up first, gets asked the first question. He like leads the room, and he, you know, pits Ted. Yeah. That, that, well, it, I think that, that probably has to be me because Jim goes to all the glamorous events and gives his thoughts on them because he's one. He's one of these highly paid columnists, <laughs> whereas I'm just a down at heel reporter. You're McNulty. Uh, can I? I say, I've never seen a minute. I've never seen a minute of Ted Lasso. Uh, so uh, that that was it. Wasn't that like your joke was bad? It was just aimed at the wrong person because I've just yeah. never ever seen a single minute of it. It is it is <laughs> it is an okay show, and it's interesting. I think this year <laughs> they now have rights with the Premier League, so they're incorporating you know uh, the rivals West Ham, 
you know, in the past it's always been fictional teams, and but now I think they've worked out an agreement or paid whatever they had to pay or whatever, and the Premier League is part of the show now, so. Um, yeah. It. Well, it's been hugely, it's been hugely successful. It's very popular in in England. You know, um, people people find it. Uh, you know, just just enjoy it. Um, uh, and and uh, I, I think it's. Um, I think I think it took them by surprise how successful it took been. me by surprise. Uh, because yeah. the, interesting, the interesting thing is, um, football uh, provides the most unexpected. Uh, plot lines, the narrative of football, you you can't really conjure up, and it's never really worked as as a as a fiction, you know, because they always seem a bit contrived. The plot lines when you kind of fictionalise them, uh, but Ted Lasso it seems to have worked. It seems to have got over that, um, and you know, um, all credit to it. It's absolutely brilliant. I know, I know, uh, uh, it's changed the lives of those guys who who, who first wrote it. They were kind of struggling yeah, um, comic writers in England, mm-hmm. and now they are big stars, getting very, very well paid. So good on them. Yeah, good for everybody. All right, it can, it can, it can be used. It can be used as an insult as well, because of course, whenever Le- Leeds lost a couple of games under poor old Jesse Marsh. He had Ted Lasso thrown at him by a lot of people, which actually I found quite—it was, it was like it was—it was a bit like bullying, really. Oh, that's um, not nice. I, yeah. I, I, you know, he, he leaves a couple of games, and people talk about Ted and stuff like this. You know, um, but the jokes on them. Ted's a beautiful human deep down. You know what I mean? He wins everybody over. Yeah, because he's a beautiful, positive guy. So jokes on them. The book is called Red on Red, Liverpool, Manchester United, the fiercest rivalry in the world. The authors are Phil McNulty and Jim White, two great lads who gave me a lot more time probably than they felt like on this uh, Wednesday afternoon. I appreciate that very much. Is there anything you guys want to plug or mention or anything like that? No, just go out to, go out and buy the book if you can get your hands on it. It's absolutely brilliant, and it's very reasonably priced. Do you guys have any questions for me? <laughs> Who do you think's going to win the Premier League? Then you think it's going to be City, dear? Well, my instinct says it will be City because they're the team, right? You know what I mean? Like they're, I just can't see them failing. I guess you know what I mean. I I would like it to be um, Arsenal because now they have Jorginho, and even though I have a love hate relationship with Jorginho, um, you know I I love him enough to hope he can get another. Uh, you know, he won the Champions League with Chelsea a few years ago. Hopefully he can win a Premier League with Arsenal. Um, so, you know, I guess I, I, I feel that way. But, you know, Holland and Manchester City. Manchester City are those dudes, right? You know, and I love their coach. And uh, I don't know. I find it hard to think that they they have some injuries now, though, right? Thoden's going to be out for a while. Did I hear? Maybe a month? Yeah. I think I heard that. Yeah. Yeah, so yes. so Italy Italy now has to get players from South America, doesn't it? So Jorginho, <laughs> that guy who scored for um, them against England, he came from Argentina. So Rattugi, yeah, yeah, Rattugi, Rattugi. Yeah, look at. I think Mancini's right. England has had naturalized players who have passports who aren't necessarily from England, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> everyone. Owen Hargreaves. Yeah. Owen Hargreaves is the famous one. Yeah. yeah, I mean, every. I think every side in international football has had players like this. Um, look at. Personally, I wish every player was born and bred in Italy and, you know, um, you know, whatever. But, like, I also think I like something about a guy who picks Italy. You know, someone who says, you know what? I want to wear that shirt. 
that's the one I want to wear. For whatever reason it is, maybe he just thought he would never be a player at Argentina. He thought there's too many strikers there. Maybe for him it's opportunity, you know, but I like to think, you know, I was born in Italy, but almost nothing is more important to me than that shirt in my whole life. You know what I mean? Um, other than like, yeah. you know, other than the obvious things like family and things like that. But when it comes to sport, almost nothing is more important to me than that shirt. So, you know, if, uh, if that means that, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I uh, look it. It's been a rough time since the Euros. We could barely finish celebrating it before Jorginho's kicking penalties into the upper deck and sabotaging our World Cup chances. And, uh, you know, we did have success in the Nations League. And then what do we get for it? We get a group with England. You know what I mean? Like, come on. We've had enough qualifying issues. We have to do that to us. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I want to believe in Mancini, but sometimes I'm nervous about Mancini. So, but, but hey, he, the kid scored twice in two games. He'd only been in the country for two days. He didn't know anybody. He doesn't speak the language. And he got out on the field and he scored in both games. It's got to say something about him, I think. So, but, you know, I, I hope that the next great striker for Italy Personally, I hope it's going to be Raspadori or Scamacca or Willie. You know what I mean? If it's this kid, fine. But part of me wishes it was one of the other three. But I don't know. I don't know. We beat Malta. Take that, Malta. (laughs) 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 And it's on to the Nations League. We are on to the Nations League, which I, I learned is one of these tournaments that when you lose, ah, oh, that thing. Who cares about the Nations League? And when you win, you're like, we won the Nations League! You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fellas. Thank you so much. I appreciate Brilliant. this. Okay. All right. Talk no, to you for the call. Thanks for calling. All right. Be safe. Take care. All the very best. Thank you. See ya. Bye-bye. 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 Could have used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high Way up firm and high Out past the cornfields where the woods got heavy All right, I want to thank Phil McNulty and Jim White, the authors of a book, Red on Red, Liverpool, Manchester United, and the fiercest rivalry in the world, and it's time, and the Sportscasters Book Club has come to an end. Thanks to uh, Phil and Jim for help allowing us to help them. Appreciate that. All right, in a second, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk to Justin Bourne, who's booked down and back on Alcohol, Family, and a Life in Hockey was a really excellent read. Uh, Justin's very honest about his struggles, struggles within his family, his brother having spina bifida, his father, despite being an NHL athlete, not taking care of himself, uh, and that being passed down to Justin's life and really does a great job. And I had a really great time interviewing him. That will be next as well. All right, we announced it last week, a new book by Jeff Benedict. We had done The Dynasty, his book on the New England Patriots. 
And we also did his book with Armin Katayan called Tiger. Uh, this one's called LeBron, and it's about LeBron James. I haven't started it yet, but maybe I'll bring it with me on vacation and get started. Uh, we'll hook up with Jeff in a couple weeks and talk LeBron, his book by the book by Jeff Benedict. I'm going to be interested to see where Jeff stands in terms of LeBron's social stances, the ones he has taken and the one he hasn't. I wonder if he'll be critical of him there or let him off the hook. We'll see. Another one I need to learn more about, hopefully Kirk McKnight, the author, will be available to us. But his beautiful book, The Voices of Baseball, the game's, the game's greatest broadcasters reflect on America's pastime, uh, came in the mail with a horrible sticker in the middle that I can't peel off and has basically ruined the book. So if you want it, let me know. There's no reason to keep it. But, I mean, it's still readable. It's just the front cover is ugly now. So I'm not going to keep it on the shelf. But the voices of baseball, the game, the game's greatest broadcasters reflect on America's pastime. Man, I stink. All right. Before I embarrass myself any further, let's take a break. We'll be right back with Justin Bourne. <laughs> I promise you that is the fight song of the University of Alaska Fairbanks, where our next guest went to college and played college hockey. He's got a new book. It's called Down and Back on Alcohol, Family, and Life. For the second time, a warm sportscaster's welcome to Justin Bourne. What's up, Justin? How are you doing today? I'm doing good, man. How are you? Very good. The book is called Down and Back on Alcohol, yes, Family, and a Life in Hockey. What? Why was now the time to do it, you think? Um, you know, I had been sober for a number of years, um, you know, after a change in my life and I wanted to write a book, a hockey book, um, that kind of was investigated all the, the little parts that you could only experience if you played hockey, you know, the cultural stuff, whether it's partying, you know, the, uh, team etiquette, all that stuff. And the best way to do it was to use my own timeline of my career and kind of, uh, you know, expound on those things as they came up. And then it's impossible to tell my story and use my timeline without getting into, you know, my descent uh, into alcoholism. And it's tough to tell my story without telling my dad's story. So what started out as me trying to write a book about interesting hockey cultural things ended up being more of a memoir style book about my dad and myself and um, you know, our adventures through hockey, but also with uh, getting better from a pretty serious condition. Yeah, because you even say, I think at one point in the book, that you were visualizing yourself one day writing the book. Do I have that right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I used to yeah. drop my son off at daycare, and it was like an eight-minute walk home, and I'd be walking home, you know, like three shots of vodka in my system, just knowing it wasn't sustainable. Like, you cannot live like that. And just like, yeah, I, I always thought that someday I would find a way to come out of it. At least I hoped I would. And so I'm certainly proud I, I, I at least forecasted that correctly. We talked about it a little bit last time you were on. I think we had a, a really good kind of junior, major junior versus NCAA debate, discussion, whatever. Obviously, you know, you've you played NCAA yourself. I'm a huge proponent of, of NCAA hockey, especially for American board players. I, I think... And we went over this kind of last time. I think that the time where uh, a, a a 15 or 16-year-old 
American hockey player needs to leave for Canada has passed. I think that whether yeah. you're the first overall pick, a third round pick, a seventh round pick, the game is developed enough to stay here and 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 to be a part of that development. Uh, but your journey starts even before that. You played in the BCHL. Um, what do you remember? You, you talk about it a little bit in juniors too, but I thought it'd be interesting to kind of go through the steps here. How did, how did you end up in the BCHL as opposed to you know one of the many other options that you have yeah. around that age? That 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 step before NCA, you know. Well, you know, one of those things with, with, with like playing major junior in Canada is like you got to be good young. You know, like right. they you, want that three year commitment or whatever, right? They, yeah, yeah, like mm-hmm. you know, no one wants to see you show up as a nineteen year old who's never you know hasn't played uh, you know in the league yet, and really there's nowhere to play or not a lot of places to play. Um, you know, to bridge it from minor hockey to when you are nineteen, so they they want guys at you know seventeen, eighteen years old. I didn't really get good until I was 15, you know, like maybe 14 or 15. I was a good minor hockey player. My last year of midget, you know, I, I really grew um, and took a, a stride. And so it was pretty easy to tell that like a team teams are going to look at me and be like, that's a, you know, OHL, WHL guy or a future NHLer. But I was getting pretty good, pretty fast once I started getting good. And so my mom and I saw the opportunity to use the runway of junior hockey uh, to get better and try to get a college scholarship when I was 20, you know, like that gave me some years to do it. Um, right. You know, I ended up, I played junior B the next year, which is kind of, you know, in, in BC at the time it was junior B and then junior A above that. And then you go to university after that. Junior B that year, I led the league in scoring, or sorry, I was second in the league behind Andrew Ebbett, who ended up playing some NHL games. Um, so I was a, I was a good player at that level. So all of a sudden, I'm like 18 years old, and I, you know, we're having that conversation that you know I was just referring to, like, do you want to go play major junior and ruin your NCAA eligibility when no one sees me as an NHL prospect? I'm, you know, I'm only just kind of taking my first steps as a good player. Well, staying in junior A allowed me the time to play a lot, to be a better player, to eventually get that college scholarship and continue developing at a pace that was right for me, you know? Yeah. What do you remember most about the quality of the league back then? Because I would say now, with the exception of the USHL, I would think the BCHL develops the most quality NCAA players. Yeah. You know, I would think it was good. Yeah. No joke, it was really good even then, and, and I always felt it was the best uh, junior league. You know, I, could, I saw the other games or the other teams in video, and they, you know, all that sort of stuff. But I just saw the people who came out of major junior with me. You know, I, I played against uh, Zajac, and I played against Parisi, and um, you know who else? Or sorry, not Parisi. That was in college, but. Um, I can't even think of the names. There's four or five kids who went on to become good NHLers. Shea Weber, um, you know, touched touch base there briefly in the uh, in junior B at least. So, you know, there were some good players. And I just felt like it was a good place to to take that step. So I, I was good in that league at 1920, but the guys who went on to the NHL were good in that league at 16, 17, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's like you have someone like Mac Celebrini right now and the USHL doing things the 16-year-old has never done in that league. You know what I mean? And you see, like, okay, well, this guy projects out very, very highly, even compared to maybe the second-leading scorer in the league a couple years yeah. older. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
than than Celebrini is. So I think that's that's still true now. You know, when you see the numbers in those leagues, well, how old are they? That's probably the first thing you you think of then. But, well, uh, and not to skip around, but in yeah. college, I played. I used to line up against Jonathan Taves. You know, like I played against him my senior year. He was a freshman. Right. I turned twenty-four my senior year at one point, and Taves was eighteen. So I could hang with him. I was just as good as Taves. He was six years younger than me. Was the only problem. Right, and and I think that that's an interesting thing for NCAA teams right now when they're building out their squads. Right? How do they balance? you know, some of the five-star recruits that are 18 years old with also having older teams, you know, having 24-year-old seniors. I think it's a real interesting balance of roster um, construction. We talked about it a little bit last time, but how did you end up at Alaska Anchorage? Why were they the team and who else? Did you go on any, any other visits? Did you consider any mm-hmm. other teams? Did you focus on them early? What, what was the process of ending up at uh, Alaska Anchorage? Yeah. You know, as a, a rookie in the in junior A, like coming out of junior B, I had a good year, scored 25 times and, I don't know, 55 points or something. So the next year at the start, I had quite a bit of interest and had a decent start. So I uh, had spoken with UNH, like New, New Hampshire. I flew down to New Hampshire and met with, uh, you know, Coach Dickie Milley there. And um, I had this year, I flew down to Niagara University. Yeah, right uh, by me. Too, yeah. yeah, yeah, not too far from where you're at. Yeah. Um, I talked a lot with Colorado College and Bowling Green, and then I flew up to Alaska. So those are like the five places that I was serious about. Alaska was a full-ride scholarship, um, and not all the other ones were. It was in the best division at the time. Like that conference was, you know, North Dakota, Wisconsin, Golden Gophers, Denver. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was pretty loaded. Um and, so, and the opportunity to play, like they, they really liked me. So I saw I could play, I could get a full ride, and I could play in a good conference. And that, you know, and I also thought, hey, Alaska, like cool experience That'd to be just fun, do yeah. different than yeah. everyone else. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of the decision. I, if I had my choice, I would have gone to New Hampshire. I would have been my first pick, but they didn't end up offering uh, much at all. You know, like I could have walked on there, I think, my first year. And, and that, uh, that, that wasn't going to go well for me, I didn't think. Yeah, like my brother went to Yale, and um, BC was kind of his dream school. And Jerry York came and watched him play a Sunday afternoon USHL game, but they offered a three for four. You know what I mean? So my brother was like, "Well, if they really wanted me, if they really believed in me, they wouldn't really offer a three for four. So I'm gonna go to yeah, Yale. yeah. It's so, tough, and that, yeah. That, that tells you what they how they see you being used. You yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting process the recruiting process you know my heart this is kind of a side note but and i know it's not your school it's the other alaska d1 school but my heart broke for the poor kids on the alaska university of alaska d1 team this year as they were the first cut after a bid was stolen on the last day of the season they just missed the ncaa tournament as an independent too they're out there grinding probably a ton of travel this year and they they finished their season in a in an ncaa tournament spot um I think the projection was they would make it and just one too many bids got stolen in, in conference championship play you know, and they just I love I, I I do feel some sympathy for them but I have been, <laughs> uh, the hatred the rival. after my years up <laughs> yeah. there so that's a real shame let me tell you <laughs> I love it I love the rivalry still I love that uh, <laughs> it's like me watching the Ohio State uh, Harvard game this year and and just I want to <laughs> feel bad that the ECA looks bad because I love the ECAC but uh. I just love watching Harvard lose eight, lose eight to nothing to Ohio State more, I guess. That uh, sounds fun. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. Uh, 
what where did your drinking stand at this point? You talk about it a little bit in the book, but I assume that and you just feel like you're a kid enjoying yeah. stuff, right? Yeah, you know, it definitely didn't stand out in an environment like college hockey where everyone kind of drinks. But even still, I, you know, I kind of kept it to the weekends as much as I could. You know, you mix in the odd weeknight here and there. And towards my senior season, like there's a definite, definitely a progression over my career where I showed up as someone who didn't drink like at all. And then I drank like everyone else for a few years. And then by my senior year, I was canvassing the guys on the team to see if anyone would come drink with me on a Monday at Al's, you know, with like one of those sad Alaskan bars. Um, <laughs> so, you know, as much as at the time though, it was like, ah, you know, born likes to party and it's not like you don't recognize it at that age as uh, a significant problem, but it was definitely the start of one. I think you touched on this a little bit in the book, but I was thinking about this the other day when I went, I went to Fredonia college and uh, it's a D it's a D three hockey school in the SUNYAC. And um, the one, the best team in the league when I was a student at Fredonia was Plattsburgh. And uh, they had this kid named Hodge, whose dad was a Bruin, a really good yeah. Boston Bruin uh, or a known Bruin, whatever, however good he was, I guess didn't matter. Cause everyone knew he was the son of a Bruin. You know what I mean? And everyone rode this kid on this all the time. And, you know, if he shot at the puck wide, it was a chance to razz him because his dad would have scored or whatever. Yeah. You know, did you feel this as a son of an NHL or did you always feel as you were playing kind of the expectation to live up to your dad or to be your dad? Or, um, you know, did people razz you about it like like we the student section at Fredonia did to poor, uh, uh, to poor Hodge there? No, not at all. No, no. I, I didn't. You know why? You know, for one, my dad wasn't around when I grew up. You know, like sure. he, yeah, you know, my parents got divorced when I was eight. He went to coach in the IHL at the time, so he wasn't really a part of my hockey playing in my younger days, and I didn't take it all that seriously. I don't think anyone really took my prospects in hockey all that seriously until all of a sudden, when I started to get good at fifteen, I was like, "Huh, what if I also tried?" You know, like I started to kind of make that push, and then so. As I got older, like everything I did was kind of gravy and surprised people more than anything because I didn't grow up someone with like this dying passion to be an NHL player. So um, I don't know. I think it's different. It depends if the you know the the guy is around and leaning on you as a parent or not. And you know, anytime something went well for me again, it was more like, oh, okay, you're still climbing the ranks. You know, it was more more surprise than expectation. Did you ever? Did anyone ever say to you? Or did you ever think about as you're I'm, – I'm trying to walk down two separate paths at the same time, kind of like you did in the book a little bit. But yeah. as you were drinking more and more, when did you first start to relate that to the issues your dad had had? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I think when I saw my like two years out of college, I played, um, you know, up and down between the ECHL and the AHL. Mm. And – you know, one of my, I remember my roommate one year just being like, you come home and have like a vodka tonic every day. Hey. And I was like, yeah, just like, it's like an everyday relaxing after practice thing, you know? And it's like, that's not really a normal drinking time. And I remember even being like, I do seem to be the only one who like kind of keeps up these drinking habits. And that would have been around the time, or at least the beginning of the time where I could see my dad's life kind of going off the rails and him really struggling and so I think part of me was always aware that, like, we have a lot of alcoholism in our family. My dad seems to be having a hard time. I seem to be, you know, a guy who, even amongst hockey players, likes to drink a bit more than others. 
you know, and, and I, I just kind of kept it in the back of my mind without ever saying, Hey, I want to do something about this or prove to myself that I'm not an alcoholic. It was always like, I'm just going to keep an eye on this and see where it goes. And even though I watched it get worse and worse, I never acted on it. I just kind of more consciously accepted that. Yep. I am an alcoholic. Hmm. Interesting. Let's go back to, let's go back to Alaska for a second. Cause I don't want to get out of it too fast, but you know, I was telling you about my brother. He played D one. He 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 had two assists in the third period of a regional final to, to to send you out to the Frozen Four. He looks back at that day and that game as his best game, his best moments. What about you? Do you have a best game, a best moment, something that sticks out about your time there? I know you said you played against Taves. That conference then was loaded with some of the best college hockey players in the nation, whether they be at Minnesota or North Dakota or some of the other story programs. My 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 brother's teammate. Kenny Agostino used to call that league or what was left of it in 2009, 10, 11, 12. I know it sort of the college landscape has changed a little bit because Minnesota went to the Big Ten, but they would call those teams the WNHL teams. Um, what do you remember most about Alaska? Your, you know, just give us a fun goal or a fun moment or a fun game yeah. that you remember. You know, I think this is maybe an athlete's perspective of like, you know, the moments that it almost happened or could have been better stick out to you. But you know, we, my freshman year. So the, after I committed to Alaska, they won one hockey game the rest of the year. They were awful. So like expectations were non-existent uh, my freshman year. And we were actually pretty good, you know, compared to expectations. I think we won 15 times, um, you know, out of 30 some, whatever, which, you know, big step up for us. But then we went into the playoffs uh, Wisconsin was still good and competitive then. They had Pavelski and Ryan Suter and right. uh, Ryan Elliott and Nett, and we beat them in a best of three to go to the Frozen Five, they called it for the WCHA there. Legendary and, tournament, yep. Yeah, it was awesome. And then so that was in St. Paul, and we won our first game. I think we beat CC, like Colorado College at the time. But the next game against North Dakota uh, was the one I remember most. Uh, Curtis Glenn Cross scored a big goal for us and that I assisted on from behind the net. And we were tied in the third period. I remember making a pass on a two-on-one where I actually dropped the goalie before I made the pass, slid it over to a teammate who one-timed it, oh, and the goalie the reached back and pulled it out of the net. Oh, a huge save. Huge no. save. We ended up, yeah, we ended up losing that game. And that play to me, I remember, I look back on that one like, ah, you know, the one that got away from college. All right. Oh, I love that feeling, though, when you make a pass. And you know you you just create a tap-in for your guy. You know what I mean? That Yeah. Wow. You should have caught it and shot it. I'm still mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> There's one thing you mentioned in the book a few times. You talk – and in the college years, I think it comes up too, is that you often wish that you had someone beside your mom. And it wasn't necessarily as like a, a dig to her anyway, I didn't think. But no. you just wish that there was someone else there maybe who could have advised you um, through your hockey career. Uh, someone um, that – that could have helped. And I know what you mean because, you know, I've seen it through my family and my brother's journey and know how important the people outside the family who had either been through it with yeah. other kids or whatever. I know how important that can be. But when you the look, hardest part. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just, just going to say, say like, the hardest you... part, man, like you don't know the landscape at all. Yeah. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, I I played well in junior B that one year, but like that was I just picked a team that was closest to Kelowna where I lived. And then so after that, it was just like. You know, I'm getting all these letters from all these different cities in the BCHL, and I don't know one from the next. I don't know the owners. I don't know the cities. I don't know which one's supposed to do what. So, like, you know, kind of flying blind. And then same with universities. 
it was just, you know, my mom doing her best to help advise me and, and say, you know, what are the, what's the school like? Where is it? What's the offer like? And, but otherwise I was kind of just left to choose and I didn't know anything. I didn't, you know, that stuff I mentioned about the conference being so good, I wouldn't have even really understood how much better it was at the time than the other, the rest of college hockey. Like it was a little bit luck that I chose the team in that division. So I just, I really felt like I was underinformed when I was making the choices I made really throughout my whole pro career too. Yeah. And, and I think what I was going to ask you too is, do you think anything would have been different necessarily if you had that person? You know, it's a great question because I think I made the right choices in almost every case. I think, you know, like someone might have talked me into going to Bowling Green instead of Alaska. Um, you know, it's, you know, I, I don't know. I think what might have happened for me is I ended up playing ECHL hockey my senior year of university. Like I, right. I, I wanted to wait. I, I had done enough in my career to kind of paint myself as a guy who could play in the American League. You know, I led my team in scoring a couple of years in a very good conference. And Alaska, the Aces, in the were in the ECHL, and they really wanted me to come play for them. And I, I was just not ready to be done partying with college. I, you know, the end of my college career, I was not ready to, you know, be a pro hockey player. And so I went there, and I was non-committed. And I was drinking and I was, you know, I didn't take it seriously. And I felt like, you know, I, if you're an American league team, you look at me and you go, okay, this kid just played eight games in the ECHL and had five points. And, you know, it was kind of half effective. Like, is this an American leaguer? I think I should have just, you know, had some advice to like, maybe just wait till post summer when you're yeah. in shape, you know, and start fresh next year. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's fair. You did get to play a couple of playoff rounds though with the Aces, right? Which is kind of cool. It was maybe. cool, yeah. yeah. No, I mean it was it was really neat to be a part of. And actually, uh, Davis Payne was the coach, and he's an awesome coach. So I felt like I did learn a lot um, from him and from them. And and you know there were definite perks to seeing it, but I just thought from the outside it probably painted me as uh, something I didn't want to be painted as. You, you talk a lot in the book about you know being the son of an NHL player who you know, won four Stanley Cups with the Islanders and then eventually marrying the daughter of an NHL player, Clark Gillies. And there's this really funny part where you talk about how when you first started dating with her, your friends would just send you random clips of him beating the heck out of some enormous-looking NHL player just to yeah. make sure you you, you, knew, <laughs> you knew what you are getting into. And I thought that was kind of a laugh-out-loud funny moment yeah. in the book. I could just picture you, you know, looking uh, at the video and saying, like, okay, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Better have manners. Got to have manners. Yeah. There, yeah. Was, there was no like date her for a couple of weeks and then just decide not to. It was uh, had to push my chips all in pretty early with pre. What was uh? Do you think when you walk in? I was wondering this. I think when you walk into a relationship with someone whose dad was in an NHL or and you bring the credibility of a guy, an NHL player who, or not an NHL player, excuse me, a hockey player who had played Division One on scholarship and had some pro hockey experience, did that like bring credibility to you as like a human being walking into that relationship? You know, yeah, you know, it's funny. Like given Clark and where he'd come from, like I was fortunate that he knew my story in and out. Like my my dad and and clark were really close to the point where when i was playing golf as a 16 year old i needed a new driver and you know my dad knew that clark had all these golf hookups so clark had sent me a the original callaway big bertha when i was 16 years old even though i hadn't seen him you know like we our family had maintained some sort of connection with them even across the continent so yeah going into that relationship 
you know, he knew what I was about. Right. And so I didn't, you know, for, yes, being a hockey player helped, but he didn't care about that so much as he trusted my name and family and, you know, what we were all about. Fair. I, I talked a little bit on this in this interview about being a brother and a big part of your story is being a brother and the role that that had in your life. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and being a brother and, and kind of how important that was to you over the years and, and how your experiences with your brother have um your experiences as being a brother have helped you through your life? Yeah, you know, I think that's um, great. I appreciate the chance to get to talk about it because Jeff is in a wheelchair. Yeah. Twice led hockey, like he coached, you know, floor hockey teams. He won a bunch of gold medals in the BC games. Like he's an athlete, but he's in a in a chair. And so... Spina bifida, right, is what you write. Yeah, in that's the book. right. Yeah. Spina bifida, scoliosis. And yeah, you know, so part of my journey was always our journey. You know, he couldn't do the things that I was trying to do. And he was a lot more excited than I thought he was going to be as I started to play competitively and higher up. You know, he was the first guy to get a hat or a jersey of whatever team I was playing on, whether it was the Soyuz Heat in Junior B or the Utah, you know, Salt Lake City or Utah Grizzlies, I guess, uh, in the East Coast League. So he was just a big supporter for me. And, and I kind of felt like I went through all this for us. And so he was one of the people that when I really lost track of my life and had been drinking, I hadn't been in touch with him very well. And I just, you know, I hadn't been a very good brother. And so part of the the incentive to get sober and, and to change my life for the better was to kind of improve things for him and for our relationship. And I am immensely proud of the person he has become, despite all his challenges, you know, 30, 40 surgeries that he's had through throughout his life. To, you know, he's a married guy with a house in Kelowna and he's, he's doing really well for himself. So, um, yeah, very proud. That is a big part of my life for sure. Yeah. And I can relate to, to Jeff, I think, a lot too, because I was that guy, you know, like my brother's 11 years younger than me, but he grew up in my locker rooms. You know what I mean? And then when yeah. I was, I was high school good. That's it. You know what I mean? I was yeah. high, I was pretty good for high school, but that was it. High school good. You know, yeah. I, I think that's a category, and that's the category I fit into. <laughs> and, and watching him kind of grow above that was very exciting to me. You know, it was very exciting to be the guy buying the hat or the shirt or whatever. You oh, know? yeah. You know, being a Sioux Falls Stampede fan because that's where he played or, you know, yeah. you know, going to Yale or whatever. So I think I relate to that and wanted to at least ask you a little bit about um, his role, and um, I'm, I'm glad we did. And shout out to Jeff. Uh, yeah, man. What a dude. <laughs> yeah it's great it's always been great incentive for me you know and and the first person i wanted to share my successes with because of the support you know yeah absolutely and and i you know i'm I, I got caught thinking about a moment there with uh with my brother as you were talking but um so you finish college you play a little bit of ecac you play a little bit of ahl uh play a little bit more echl you bounce around i think maybe down and back there's a little bit of down and back there um yeah. in terms of your parallels as you leave college and you leave the structure of that and you go into pro hockey, is, is this another moment where you feel your drinking take another step up? Yeah. You know, the, the first year, it's actually funny, you know, you can kind of, they, they talk about it in, you know, the program about how people search for these, you know, cures for, for drinking that are not stopping drinking. And one of them is geographic cures where you move someone new and, you know, you can pull it together for a short period of time. And I would say that after university, I knew I was going to an NHL camp. And that summer, I worked really hard. I got in really good shape. Uh, I didn't party quite as much. 
uh, and, and kind of got off to a good year. After I got into the mix of that year, which, you know, I played the whole season, I was up and down between the AHL and the ECHL and the grind. After that, I didn't have it in me for another summer of pulling it together. I would say after my first year pro, I really just let let go of uh, of the dream of the NHL and of trying to be the best player I could be. And I would say the bottle eventually won there. You were kind of ahead of your time when it comes to media, I think. You know, you kind of forged your own path before people were... I mean, everyone now, like, not everyone, but so many people now, they forge their own path. And you started really... Really modestly, I think I remember you said in the book you wrote a blog for. I'm trying to think of the name of the Islanders. Um, oh, Islanders point, point blank. blank. Islanders point blank. That's right. Chris uh, Boda was the name of the guy. Let you write a little bit about the connection between your families, uh, the Bourne family and the Gillies family, and that kind of got you in front of the biggest audience you had, and you kind of took out from there. Do you ever think about that now, looking back, about how you were a little bit ahead of your time there as a self-starter and and creating your own path before you moved on to the bigger companies that you eventually worked for yeah for sure you know it's i am i am proud of the path because it's authentic you know like i it wasn't like hey this guy played pro let's give him a thousand bucks to write for you know an article a week it was like you know i made first paid gigs were 15 bucks an article for the hockey news um, and I wrote one a week and I invoice them for my, you know, whatever it was there, 60 bucks a month or something at the end of the month. So, um, you know, I, it's another situation though, where you look at the support that I had, where my wife had a full-time job and she basically said, all right, why don't you take one year out of hockey here and see if you can make something out of this media thing. And if you can't make enough money to justify it after that, you know, well, uh, you're going to have to rethink things. And it's not like I came out of one year and started making a lot of money, but we could see a path forward for the career after a year. So having her support enabled me to have the freedom to pursue something that I wanted to pursue, you know? Yeah. And it's interesting you talk about the support too, because I have certainly, I've been married nine, nine years now around there and tested the limits of the through sickness and health version of our vows. Um, and I, I think I've realized how important it is to have that support that, you know, people say the greatest decision they ever made is, is their partner. And sometimes you kind of think that that's, they're just being, you know, whatever kind of making a joke in a way or being cheeky or whatever, but yeah. it's so incredibly true. And I think I, I, I felt it in your book. Um, do you think you'd be, you would have ever gotten through this without those supports? Do you, it, it, it truly is. I think it, when you talk to younger people, what advice I, more and more, I feel like the advice that would be number one, I would ever give someone is make sure the person you're sharing your life with, you know, is great. Cause without that, yeah, we'd be in trouble. I don't know. And, and I, I read that in the book. If you wanted to, For sure. And you know, a huge part of it is just, you know, even if you're not someone who's blessed to have someone in your life, like it's that family element where, you know, when I needed to go to rehab, my mom dropped what she was doing and flew to Toronto from Kelowna to help my wife with our young son. You know, like, you know, she was there for me. My wife, when I got out of treatment, you know, she liked to drink with me, you know, for in our younger days. And she didn't have a drink for two years. You know, like the commitment that the people around me made to helping me get better is everything to me and it makes it drives me now to give back to them right like i want to show them that i was worth all the commitments and sacrifices and all that so 
Um, yeah, it's kind of a you know circle of you know reciprocation, whatever you want to call it. You know, I, I like to think of it as my familial ecosystem, and a healthier me allows our whole ecosystem, the whole way we're all connected, uh, to be a healthier one. So yeah, I'm I'm grateful to have had pe- people who allowed me to get back to the better version of myself. I don't know if you use this term or not in the book. I don't I don't remember if you did, but. Were you a functional alcoholic? Is that the way to describe your life in these years? Yeah, I would say that from my post-career, like when I stopped playing hockey and was in media, you can make the case I was a functional alcoholic for like seven, eight years where I moved up uh, in my career. My relationship was fine, um, you know, and I often drank a bottle of vodka a day. So, you know, it was functional, but like I was far you know i was overweight i was you know uh, unhealthy and i physically addicted to alcohol and i would blow people off and was flaky and you know i i really limited my life i was functional but it certainly wasn't functioning the way that i would want to function in my life yeah and and and, and what was the moment for you was there was and maybe it wasn't a moment maybe it was just a combination of moments but how did you know that you couldn't be that anymore? How did you know that you had to reform, if that's the right word? Yeah, you know, I knew I knew for years, to be honest, um, but it really got away from me, um, I don't know, maybe a year before I got sober, and my wife and I recognized it, and obviously there were incidents that led to that. You know, at some point coming home so drunk that she says, you know, you can't sleep here tonight, and I, I'm ended up in a hotel room somewhere in Toronto and I tried to do uh, harm reduction, which is like, you know, you try to moderate and I was talking to a therapist and whatever, but I was not honestly trying. I was doing those things, but then sneaking my drinks. So I knew it was bad and I knew eventually I was, I knew I was going to have to stop. And so when we finally got to the last days of it, where, you know, there was three days in a row where I just like, was lying and, um, you know, in terrible condition to be a father and a husband and an employee. My, my wife just asked me one day, do you need to go to rehab? And I, I took that, that opportunity to say yes. And, um, you know, so there wasn't like a DUI or something that led to it. It was sure. just a cumulative, holy crap, I need to get this thing fixed. Did you think you were going to lose everything? Did that, was that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I was going to lose everything. My, I had been lying to my employer about my health. You know, I was justifying it to myself by saying I was sick, just with a different type of sickness, but I wasn't producing work. My wife was talking about taking our son and moving back to New York, and it was it was all coming unglued. I am very fortunate that I was able to pull the parachute before I hit the ground. And the book itself is a a story about the parachute and being able to to pull it before you hit the ground. Uh, it's called Down and Back, Justin Bourne on Alcohol Family and a life in hockey. You can find Justin on Twitter. He's at JTBorn there, B-O-U-R-N-E. And, of course, you can uh, watch him as an analyst on Sportsnet. Uh, one or two more, Justin, I'll let you go. Uh, Bourne's blog is kind of where you say in, on one of your socials, I forget which one when I was researching, you took it from obscurity to the mainstream. And uh, I'm still fighting here at the Sportscasters to uh, do the same, to go from obscurity to mainstream. Um, but, uh, what was that like for you, that process? And, and is there, is there a moment, uh, where you knew you had exited the, uh, obscure to the mainstream? 
Yeah, I think a lot of it is just forming relationships, you know, like uh, as you and I have done. And I, and I think that's like, I remember back in the day, and I don't know uh, how old you are, but, you know, when Orange Blogs. Yeah. There you go. Okay, yeah. I'm 40. And, okay. You know, look at the Orange Blog when it started. You had the blog role in the uh, in the side links where it was like, you know, yep. you, oh, yeah. you shared other people's stuff and they shared your stuff. And I it felt like much more of a community uh, then than it did a competitive environment as it does sometimes now. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know when it really took a step. I would say when I was working for the score and I was writing some articles, uh, some systems analyst stuff, breaking down plays and I would get actual hockey people that worked in the game being like, Hey, I saw you did this breakdown. I disagree with this. I'd get a DM here and there. And I'd be like, Hey, this is getting read, you know, a little bit now finally. And, um, you know, and, and that just led to starting more relationships and really it's the foundation, uh, you're able to grow from, you know? Right about when you started at the score in 2011, might have been closer to 2012, might have been even, I don't remember exactly, but the guy who ran the scores channel on SiriusXM was talking to me, and I had a partner on the podcast at the time, talking to us about doing the show for that XM channel, SiriusXM channel, and we were getting really close he was, he had, I think one of the last things he said to me is like, you, you need to start to get someone who can speak for you more professionally make sure you have someone who knows yeah. you know and then he then he wrote me and said oh they're not having that channel anymore and i'm fired so yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know what it's funny is around that time i was talking with a guy who produced hockey night in canada it was 2012 and he was like we're gonna fly you up here you know we'll, we'll just see if the relationships work like i was like right out of hockey and uh well not right but pretty close to and then I didn't hear from him for like a month, and I reached out. Same thing, had been fired. They're going in a different direction. Was it John Another... Shannon? No, it wasn't oh, okay. John Shannon. It's a guy named Shirelli Najak. Okay. Um, but but since then, I have uh, yeah, I have since connected with. Well, I got myself on Hockey Night in Canada. Eventually, just took an extra decade. Right. Well, <laughs> all I need is the uh, score. Serious next time to re- re- regenerate itself, and maybe we'll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, real quick, and I'll let you go. Uh, give me a give me a final four in the NHL, and um, and then a final two, and then a final one. What do you think? All right, yeah, my uh, I here we go. My final four. Uh, listen, I run a Toronto Maple Leaf show. If anyone said heard me say anyone but them, I'll be in trouble. But how do you not take Boston out of, uh, out oh of this side? How's anyone going to beat them at home? Their home record is like something in three. They're, they're ridiculous. So Boston, the Rangers on the other side are, okay. to me, a ridiculous uh, stacked team. Love their decor and goaltending. Colorado is still Colorado, and I like the Oilers. So there you go. Colorado, Edmonton. Okay. I'll take – I mean, I'm going to take Boston on the way through. Yeah, uh, I get McDavid, it. McDavid's going to find his way to a cup final, and then unfortunately he's going to have to watch uh, Patrice Bergeron win a second one there for the Bruins. He will not like that. No, that's going to stick in his craw. That's my prediction. You know, I was excited about something McDavid-related lately, and I don't know why I can't remember right now what it was, but he actually spoke out about something in a way. Um, but it was like almost – it was something trivial. You know what I mean? It was something that, like, you you would need to purposely want to complain about. It. You know what I mean? I just He showed, like, a little glimpse of a personality – yeah. Um, you know, and maybe people in Edmonton who, who see him all the time, maybe they get that more. But to me, McDavid will always be the guy at the airport next to the Asian couple 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yes. I, I, I just am waiting for, you know, I'm back to the future. The pictures change. Like, I'm still yeah. waiting for him to be smiling and comfortable in that picture someday, you know, because he's so great on the ice. I just wish he could be more of a personality. I, there's no reason to get on poor McDavid's case right now. We don't have time for all that. But yeah. um, I would love to see him in a final and see how he would react to that and what that would be like. And the final is on. TNT this year in the United States. So we'll see how that goes. Justin, yep. thank you so much for this. Again, the book is outstanding. It's called Down and Back on Alcohol, Family, and a Life in Hockey. And uh, you can uh, find Justin's work, like I said, on Twitter at JT Bourne, B O U R N E. And uh, is there anything else you want to plug or mention or anything like that? No, all good, man. I appreciate you having me on. Do you have any questions for me? No, sir. Okay. Not at all. Glad to uh, glad to get to chat with you once again, pal. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I would like to thank Phil McNulty, Jim White, and Justin Foreman for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can hear this episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters podcast on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters, Instagram at sportscasters, Facebook, the sportscasters. <laughs> oh boy. I'm sure you're at all those places. Thank you. want to give a special shout out and thank you today to my friend Chris Smith. I went to high school with Chris at the Buffalo Academy for Visual and Performing Arts. And he was one of the students at the school that had real legitimate talent. The kid is an unbelievable artist. And he has created every logo for every podcast I've ever been on. Whether it's the Sportscasters or Lonely End of the Rink with Adrian Dater or Arm Drags and Rainmakers, a short-lived podcast I did with Mike Abelson or the 24-inch podcast or the Adams Division podcast. Chris has made all those logos, and he's made a few Sportscasters logos, including a new one that I love uh, that's a take on the 2017 to 2022 Italy badge that the Azzurri wore when they won the Euros in England, July of 2021. Uh, If you follow me on Instagram... You can see the post there at Sportscasters, and it's also on Twitter at Sports underscore Casters. If you see that Instagram post, you can find some links to where Chris, you can you can you can have his work. If you're interested at all in, in, in hooking up with Chris, I can definitely help facilitate that. Just shoot me an email to sportscasters at gmail.com. I uh, also wanted to mention real quick, I've been doing some video podcasts. With the North-South Connection, Justin and his partner Ryan have had me, or Aaron, excuse me, Justin and Aaron have had me on over there. Uh, I recently did a bunch of tier list podcasts, uh, and if you go to the North-South Connection wrestling page on YouTube, and you can like some of those videos or subscribe to the page, especially the ones that I do so that Aaron and Justin know that you guys are with me and it's important to have me back. Uh, I think it's good for this show if I'm over there promoting and and doing those things are fun. Uh, So I'd love for them to have me. So if you have a second, 
Subscribe, like the videos I was on, like the other videos as well if you can. Uh, just support those dudes, good dudes uh, who have done a lot for me, and I look forward to doing a lot for them in the future. All right, one last thing, and we'll get out of here. I'm in a rush because it's time for family vacation tomorrow. Now, I have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with family vacations, mostly because I didn't go on many when I was a kid. Uh, my father has never taken me on vacation. I've never been on a vacation with my dad, and I've told him a few times to his face, it's a, it's a disgrace that we never went on a vacation together. It's just really, it's really bad. Um, and it's something that bothers me to this day. And we almost went away a couple of years ago to New Orleans for a Saints and Bills game, but it ended up being on Thanksgiving. And he didn't want to go because my grandma's old and we didn't want her to miss a Thanksgiving, which I understood and was fine with that. This isn't Saints lost anyway, so I'm glad we didn't go. But never went on a vacation with my dad. My mom didn't have a lot of money. My stepdad was a scumbag. So family vacations for us was mostly Erie, Pennsylvania, where my mom had friends. We would go there. I went on a couple of vacations with my Uncle Paul. Those are great. We went to Disney one year. We went on a few. We watched uh, the Cleveland Indians play. We watched a couple of NASCAR races because he was into that. We went to Cedar Point. We would do things like that. Um, but it just wasn't anything that was around in my life. And when I met Tammy... The first thing she said to me, one of the first things she's like, I go on vacation every year with my family and now I'll bring you, you know, I'll bring you on vacation with us. And I was like, oh, great. She never went on a vacation again. So my in-laws didn't take me on a vacation until a couple years ago, right before the pandemic, when they took all of us to Disney, including Paula, uh, for my mother-in-law's 50th birthday. So it took me almost 20 years to cash in on that promise from Tammy, but. You know, I didn't go on them when I was a kid. One time, my friend from West Seneca that I went to school with, I did his papers. I delivered his papers while he was at vacation with his family. They went, they drove, they went to like four or five baseball stadiums. They're gone for a week. I did the papers. They're coming back. I was waiting for them on the porch to come back, see how it was, expecting these happy people. And they just got out of the car. They hated each other. They didn't want to be around each other anymore kind of ended the marriage in a way. They wanted me to leave immediately. They didn't want to even see my face, which I, I guess I understand looking back. And I guess it was a trauma for me. Looking back, thinking like, vacations must be so much fun. And these vacations can be so much pressure. And that's what I don't like. And even the ones that Tammy and I went on before, she likes to go, 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 go. Tammy's ideal vacation would be where every minute of the day is filled up with something. And she's just going and going and going and going. And I am the opposite. I would rather go somewhere for an event, Pearl Jam concerts, Saints game, and I'm there for the event. And as long as I do that thing, I'm good. And everything else just kind of comes as it comes. And I just slowly relax and do things at my own pace. I don't want any stress. I don't want the stress of, I need to be here. I need to be there. I only got 20 minutes left. We got to do this. This is so expensive. This is this. Spend money. Go here. Go there. I just don't like it that much. So I'm not big on these vacations, but also I understand how important they are. Because look at here I am as a 42-year-old complaining my dad never took me on one. So I know how important it is to get our daughter and take her around the country. 
Who knows? Maybe I'll even break my international rule and take her to Italy someday. So it's it's a little bit angel and devil on the shoulder kind of thing for me because on one hand, I want to take Paula where she wants to go. And when we get there, I want Paula to do everything that is fun for her. I want her to be busy every moment. I want her to we're going to the American drill. We're going to Columbus, Ohio, okay, which might not sound that luxurious, but we're looking for a city we could drive to in less than six hours, and we're looking for just a few things to do. We're trying to find a compromise between a trip like Tammy would like, a Disney trip where you fill every minute because it's so expensive and the park tickets are 150 bucks, so you got to spend every minute in the park from it opens till closes and go on every ride and eat at every stand and see every show and all that. So what I like to do, just kind of go somewhere and lounge around and not do too much and not stress and take it slow. So we wanted to go to a city that we could drive to with a few cool things to do. We're going to take Paul to the zoo, potentially in Columbus. We're going to go to the American Girl Doll store. There's a huge mall there we're going to go to. There's some restaurants we want to go to. I'm finally going to have Raising Cane's, uh, BD's Mongolian Barbecue. We're going to have a good time, and I want to have a good time, but also... The devil on my shoulder is saying, you're going to ruin it. You're going to ruin it. They're going to have a bad time. You're going to be the one that caused that family, my buddy's family, to get out of the car and hate each other. And I, I just, I have all this stress. I'm worried. I'm going to be the, the one. Why would anyone want to go on vacation with me? I don't want to do anything. I don't like anything. You know, one time Tammy, Paul, and I went to Disney. And it was when Brett Favre retired the first time. So whenever that was, look that up. And I remember I made a point to not say no to anything. And I did everything they wanted to do. And then the last day, I got sick. So sick I couldn't even leave the hotel room. And I ended up having to have my gallbladder out when we got back. I was really sick. And they never once said... Or noticed probably or thought of. Did we run Stephen to the ground? Did we do too much? So it's a tough balance for me. I'm just being honest here. You can email me the sportscasters at gmail.com. Tell me I'm an asshole if I am. If I got it wrong. But family vacations, I don't look forward to them. I kind of fear them. I haven't done anything the last four days. I'm prepping for it trying to preserve my energy. I'm trying to manage my health. I have new medicine I need to start, but I'm waiting till I come back in case there, I don't want there to be some kind of reaction to the medicine while I'm there and then I'm in an emergency room and I'm ruining the trip. And I just always think I'm going to be the reason the vacation is bad. So I'm worried, but I'm going to go tomorrow. I'm going to wake up tomorrow. I'm going to try to have the best time I can have. I'm going to enjoy my daughter my wife, my family, my life. I'm going to do my best. And then when I come back, we're going to have a podcast with Joe Davis. We're going to have a podcast with Frank Izola is finally going to debut. Uh, we got a lot of really great guests coming up. The 10-year anniversary celebration of Yale's national championship is coming up. So let me get out of here. Let me go on this vacation. And I will see everyone back here in a week or so. 24 inch podcast don't forget that we recently put up an episode from 1984 at the madison square garden and next week when i get back from vacation we're going to record wrestlemania one as well 
All right, with that said, I'm going to vacation. I'll be back in a few days. I'm out. I'm out.